Hi, I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of CD Records. The music you just heard was the beginning of a trio, a string trio, by Dutch composer Dick Kattenberg. It's the first piece on a new album on CD Records called Silenced Voices, and we'll explain that title in just a moment. It's the debut recording of Chicago's Black Oak Ensemble, and as listeners to this podcast know, every time we have a new release on Sadie Records, we have a new classical Chicago podcast. And I'm thrilled to be here with all three members of the Black Oak Ensemble, which is a string trio. In order of instruments, Desiree Rustrat violin, Aurelian Pedersoli viola, and David Cunliffe cello. So welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So before we get to the album itself, let's talk a little bit about your group. How did you come together to form Black Oak Ensemble? Well, we came together because mainly we were just really good friends. And at the time, Aurelian was a violinist in Spectral Quartet. David and I are in the Lincoln Trio and are members of the Lincoln Trio. We all have European roots and had some contacts in the summer to do a summer festival and just started talking. And at the time, Aurelian hadn't played much viola, and this was a couple years ago. And we said, how about playing some viola? And we got together and just for fun, just reading. And we did that quite often. And that morphed a year or two later into actually thinking, oh, maybe we should read through some of the string trio literature. Being in a piano trio, you sort of, as a violinist, definitely miss the string sound or having that opportunity. And obviously playing quartets is much more difficult. So we started playing quite a bit of string trio repertoire, as well as collaborations with a guitarist and a friend of ours that's also a bandonian player and thought, oh, you know, this is really great. We can do many different projects, being a string trio, but then actually branching out, thus the black oak tree, and Ah. being able to do other projects. So basically, black oak ensemble is very project-oriented, being the string trio as the base of the tree, if you want to say. And I should note, since you mentioned it, uh, Desiree and David are both members of the twice Grammy-nominated Lincoln Trio, including a nomination for their most recent recording on CD trios from her homelands. What you said earlier begs a question. Aurelian, do you consider yourself nowadays a violinist, a violist, both? Oh, a violist, yeah. I play very little violin these days. So the switch is complete? Oh, yeah, complete. (laughs) As complete as it can be. I did spend 25-plus years of my life playing violin, so... And was it the chance to work in this ensemble that really made that decision yeah. for you? Yes, I think it was a big part of it. It was very weird the way it happened because I'd never played the viola. I didn't know how to read the clef. I didn't know what to do with the C string. And the first concert that we played, I still have the part. It was a serenade for string trio. And I have the name of every note on top of every note and I'm fingering and which <laughs> string I should be playing it on. But it became very natural for me. It was a way to reinvent myself as a musician. So it's been great so far. Well, you make me feel better because I still struggle with viola clef. So. Yeah. <laughs> I think everybody does. Yeah. It's a scam. Well, let's talk about the actual program now of this album. What was the inspiration for choosing this program? I think the program came to us. At the time, we were throwing around a number of things that we could think of recording, and David and I were invited on the Ravinia trip that started out in Budapest. And... We love to walk the city and look at bookstores and so forth, and we stumbled into a bookstore that had lots of music. 
and we found all these string trios from composers that we hadn't really heard of before, and we brought it back home and showed Aurelian, and we realized that there were two of the composers that there was a common thread in that they were composers that had written in concentration camps. And from that point, we had gotten in contact then with Bob Elias of the Oral Foundation in Los Angeles. And in the meantime, Aurelian had spoken to his mother about these composers and also asked her if she had information. And we ended up, between all these people, putting a program together and thought this would be an amazing thing to be able to record. Just so we are clear, Aurelian, why would your mother have been in a position to help with this? My mother is a history teacher back in France, and actually at the time of this all happening, she was reading a book called Music at Terezin, which is a large book about all the music that was composed in Terezin. But she's a history teacher, and she comes from a Sephardic family, and she, for the past 20 years, has made it her mission to take her classes down to Terezin, Auschwitz, Krakow, as part of a history lesson. And I grew up with that. And when we started looking at those pieces, mostly the Krasa and the Klein, and found out that it was composed in Terezin, I think that's when it clicked that someone like her would be a good person to focus and think about what that all meant. That's how she got involved with it. So basically between the Budapest bookstore and your mother, that's how the repertoire was discovered. Yes, as well as Bob Elias, who gave us some leads on some people that could help us discover some of this music, who turned out to be relatives of some of the composers. Another interesting thing is when you said you come back to the title of Silence Voices, that came actually from your mother. That was your mother's, when we put all these composers together and her reading, she thought that would be an appropriate title for... Oh, she said it in French, but it works in English. (laughs) But also one organism that really helped was a foundation called Forbidden Music Regained, and they helped us with two of the composers, and Desiree was constantly in touch with them, and they have access to those manuscripts that were never edited, which is one of the reasons why we have a world premiere on this album, and they make it possible to be edited and for musicians to actually perform that music, so it's an incredible organization, and Desiree was in touch with them the whole time, so. So it took a village. It it did. I mean, actually, (laughs) it's interesting how it started out. It came from a neighbor of ours who's also a friend of ours, Robert Levin, and I had written him about who I should contact, and he said, oh, you have to call. I'll put you in contact with Bob Elias, and then we were out in Los Angeles, and we met with Bob, and he's like, I'll put you in contact with people from Leo Smith Foundation and the Forbidden Music Regained. And at the very end, the interesting thing was, I think we had the CD composers selected, and at the very last minute, Bob suggested that we should look into Freed. And we're like, who's Freed? And at the very last minute, he was sort of added to the mix, and it's, like you said, it, it took a village. Well, I think it's time to get to some of the music on the album. As I mentioned at the very top of this podcast, the first piece is by a Dutch composer, Dick Kedenberg, born in 1919, and like all but... One of the composers on this album perished in either 1944 or 1945, 44 in his case. What do we know about him as a composer? Well, we don't know a whole lot. In fact, we thought that there was only one piece written by him for the longest time, but actually Desiree got in touch with his niece, and it turns out that in 2004 she discovered a huge box of his music in the attic, including this string trio. 
this is really fantastic piece. We know that he obtained a state diploma in theory and violin in The Hague in 1941. And this piece is one movement, and we don't really think it was meant to be part of a larger work. It just sort of stands by itself. I should note for those who only have the audio of this podcast that when you hear the British accent, that's David Cunliffe, the cellist (laughs) in the group. Now, of course, born in 1919, so this is Kattenberg's 100th birthday anniversary year. But this piece was actually an early work, premiered in 1938 when he was only 19, which was, of course, within a year of the start of World War II and about a year and a half before the Nazis occupied the Netherlands. What do we know of his history during the war? Well, he almost survived the war. He was going from one location to another, hiding, changing his name, mostly in the Netherlands. And he was found in the spring of 44. People think that it probably was an informant that told the Gestapo where he was staying. And then he was sent to Westerbrook, which is a Dutch camp, and then sent to Auschwitz, where he died. So I think... Unlike some of the other composers, he came from a very wealthy family. In fact, they owned a big textile manufacturing plant, which actually still stands. It's the Kattenberg factory and is a tourist spot. So I think it helped him initially to be able to move around a bit, maybe freer than some of the other people. But I know in the end, unfortunately, he wasn't one of the lucky ones. And he also was a good violinist and had friends that he wrote pieces for, and one of them was the painter and violinist Theo Kretz. And he also studied theory with Leo Smith, who is from the foundation that we got a lot of this information from. We uh, started the podcast with the beginning of this piece. Before we pick up where we left off, is there anything more you want to say about the music? Well, the music is, like you said, it's very exuberant and very joyous, but One thing that was very interesting to us is the use of chords that are almost jazzy. I mean, he was a big fan of jazz, and a lot of the music is extremely funny. I I feel that it's almost comical in in a good way, and it has a lot of jazz influence. The last chord of the piece, for example, just sounds like something you'd hear in a John Coltrane record. He was also a fairly good painter or drawer, I guess. Uh, on most of his course, he draws a bunch of doodles that are really funny to look at. And it kind of paints a person that was pretty much good at everything and very smart. And actually, on the score of the string trio, there is a sketch of a soldier giving Hitler a salute. Mm. That it was sort of a sign of things to come, I think. Yikes. Okay, well, now let's hear a little bit more of this youthful work. We'll pick it up pretty much right where we left off uh, the beginning of this podcast. So here is more of the string trio or trio accord by Dick Kaddenberg, performed by Black Oak Ensemble on its debut recording, Silenced Voices.
You've just heard an excerpt from a piece by a Dutch composer, Dick Kadenberg, born in 1919 and died in a concentration camp in 1944. That was his string trio as performed by Black Oak Ensemble, a string trio making its debut recording on CD on their album titled Silenced Voices. All music by Jewish composers who were greatly affected by the war, in fact, in five cases were murdered during the war and one survivor. The next composer on the album is a fellow named Shandor Kuti, a Hungarian composer who attended the Franz Liszt Academy in Budapest as a young man, where one of his classmates happened to be none other than Chicago Symphony Orchestra former music director George Schulte, who called Kuti exceptionally gifted. What more do we know about Kuti and how would you describe his music? Well, there's a great quote by Scholte about Kuti, and he says, I used to visit him at his family's desperately poor little catacomb of a home. I'm convinced that had he lived, he would have become one of Hungary's greatest composers. And I think this is the point that, um, in contrast to Kattenberg, who we think was reasonably wealthy, Kuti was poor for his entire life. He studied with Doc Nani, and he knew both Bartok and Kodai, as a lot of these composers did on the CD, and they all recognized him as a very exceptional talent. He didn't have a huge output at this time, obviously, because his life was cut off, but he wrote a couple of string quartets, three string trios, choral works, and his last work was a solo violin sonata. And he actually smuggled this scrap of paper with this composition back to his wife, So his music's very unpretentious, but it's very well-crafted, and I I think this is one of my personal favorites on the CD. You mentioned smuggling that score out. Can you describe the circumstances at the end of his life? What we know of Kuti's death is that he was in a forced labor camp in Ukraine, or Ukrainian territory. And like David said, he composed this solo sonata for his pregnant wife, who was in Budapest. And he managed to get it out through a guard of the camp. It says that he was using scraps of paper lined with musical staves. And I can't imagine how long it would take for someone to do that and what kind of dedication to want to put this kind of music and get it out to your wife. So we don't know exactly how he died, but he was probably in Ukrainian camps that generally shot you in the back of the head. So mm. that's probably what happened. Well, like the trio we just heard by Dick Kattenberg, the piece we're about to hear is a serenade for string trio. I couldn't even like the Kattenberg. It's an early work, of course, with only one exception. None of these composers have late works, but this is written when he was in his mid-20s. And I think each movement has its own flavor. Uh, How would you describe the piece? Well, the first movement is very unpretentious. It's very simple. There's a short middle movement, which is a Scherzando, which goes very fast and is almost like a composition by Bartok, where you immediately thought. And then this mysterious third movement ends on this very curious dominant seventh chord right at the end, which is like a huge question mark. And it is a really beautiful moment, so I think this would be one for everybody to hear. So here is the third movement of Serenade for String Trio by Shandor Kuti performed by Black Oak Ensemble on their new album, Silenced Voices. 
We had just heard the third and final movement of a serenade for string trio by Hungarian composer Sándor Kuti, performed by Black Oak Ensemble on their new album for CD, their debut album, Silenced Voices. If you'd like to hear more of this, you can check out the album on the Sadie Records website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. And of course, you can find the album wherever discs are sold, music is streamed, it's there. So I hope you'll want to check out more of this as you listen to the podcast. Well, now we come to the best known composer, really the one composer who's known at all on the album, Hans Krasse who is known particularly for the children's opera Brundabar, which was performed at the Theresienstadt concentration camp 50 times. That's also where Krasa wrote the two works heard on this album. Now, for those who may not be familiar with it, can you describe Theresienstadt and the role it played in Nazi propaganda? Well, Theresienstadt was a fort, or rather a fortified village, almost like a caserne, before the war. And when... The Nazis came to power. They took all of the Jews and put them in there. And at first, it was not an extermination camp. At first, it was a ghetto, like Krakow, basically. So people still had life, not good lives, but still were able to have a community, still were able to do things. They were not just cattle, like later it became. And Krasa and Klein, who is another composer on the album, started organizing along other poets and writers and actors started organizing a semblance of musical and artistic life in the ghetto. And that meant putting together plays. Brindibar, which is a Yiddish children opera, was, like you said, performed 50 times. The Nazis at first tried to suppress this need to create and this need to be artists, and then quickly realized that they could use it as propaganda to show that indeed it was not a place of death, it was just a place where the Jews were living happy. There's a very famous documentary by the Red Cross of Terezin because the Red Cross was concerned by what was happening in Germany or under the German regime. And they basically filmed the ghetto and the life at the ghetto every day. And you can see the opera being put together. You can see Hans Krasa in one of the videos. And basically it was the Nazis turning what was happening into their propaganda, saying everything is okay. As a side note, David and Desiree have a very good friend named Paul Monk, who resides not very far from where they live, and his father was in Terezin, and he met mm. his mother in Terezin. And the mother was one of the children that sang Brandy Bar. And we were giving an informal recital before we recorded the album, and we had no idea that was the case. And Alice, Paul's wife, told us about this. It was very interesting to be that connected to that story. And Paul's father was one of the lucky ones. They, they survived, so it's just amazing to talk to him about all these stories of what life was like. Now, of course, Krasa did not survive, like so many of the artists who produced significant work in Theresienstadt. After two years, he was shipped to Auschwitz in October of 1944, and pretty much immediately murdered there. And that leads me to mention the album cover image. Can you describe what's on the cover and and why it was chosen? Well, the album cover is of a close-up of a train tracks. A lot of significance in relation to Kraza, though. His music depicts 
trains in both works, but particularly in the Tanza. You really hear these trains sort of arriving and disappearing into the distance. It's very evocative. And those train tracks, the, the image is actually from Auschwitz. And what we were trying to portray with that album cover is in so much of this music, there's darkness, and then it'll go in to light, and you hear what you could describe as happiness, which is almost hard to even say that, considering what these composers were going through at the time. So when we were looking at the album cover to represent both the, the darkness of the time, but also the hope and the light that these composers were trying to put into their music as well. Since you mentioned both works, the works that are on the album are his Pasacalia and Fuga for String Trio, which definitely has train imagery in the Pasacalia section, and the Tansa or Tonic, given the original Czech name, which we will hear an excerpt from in a moment. Both of the pieces were composed in Theresienstadt. Can you explain the form of the piece as well as the content? So the Pasacalia, it's like a ground bass that keeps on repeating, which starts off in the cello, and you hear that throughout. The fugue is basically just different voices entering separately after each other with the same motive and then transforming that motive into different sort of variations. That's basically the format of the piece. As far as what it sounds like, the fugue... It's very joyful, it's very forward, it's very fast. Both movements run into each other. It's very simple writing as far as meter and, and everything else. Like other piece on the album, you would not think someone would write this in such a dark place. The Pasacalia, on the other hand, is complete opposite. It's extremely dark. It starts with a sound that is completely bare of any emotions. Start with a cello and like David said, it builds up. But then in the middle, you have this weird Viennese waltz that seems almost warped, and I can't help but think about decadent music, like Hitler branded a lot of art, you know, Egon Schiel and other people. And just this faint memory of what life used to be like, and then going back to darkness at the end of the Pasacalia, and then the fugue going right into it. It's a very, very interesting piece in the way that it's built. And that's followed immediately on the album by the dance or tonic for a string trio, but it's as much about trains as about dancing, isn't it? Well, I mean, good luck dancing on that. But <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a frenetic dance from the very, very start. The theme that is in the violin and then in the viola is almost this wobbly kind of Tarantella-feeling dance. And it is also a very, quote-unquote, happy work. It's a very short piece compared to the other one, and maybe my favorite because it ends with a viola solo. Any theory as to why he's so prevalent with the train motifs in his music? You can make many analogies about it. Trains was the main mean of transport, and at that time it was also the newest, in a way. People at that time used to enjoy living by trains, also because... You knew how you went to Auschwitz. You knew how you ended up in a death camp. And it was never on horse or in any other means of locomotion than train. So that had to be in the back of his mind. There were train tracks leading into Terezin, so it is safe to think that most prisoners were rolled in with that. And if that is what you hear most of the time in your sleep, then obviously it comes out in your music. 
Well, let's hear an excerpt of this piece, a tonic or tonsa or dance for a string trio by Hans Krasa, performed by Black Oak Ensemble on the new album, Silenced Voices. We just heard an excerpt from a piece called Tonic or Dance for a String Trio by Hans Krasa. It's from a new album, the debut album of Chicago's Black Oak Ensemble, titled Silenced Voices, composers whose voices were silenced by the Nazis and in all but one case whose lives were ended by the Nazis in World War II. Next composer, 20 years Krasa's junior, Gideon Klein, born in 1919, so he's also like Dick Haddenberg heard at the beginning of this podcast, uh, this would be his 100th birthday anniversary. Klein has a similar history to Krasa, having also worked in Theresienstadt and then been shipped to Auschwitz in the same month, October 1944. He actually managed to survive his time in Auschwitz, only to be murdered at a different camp 
1945, just days before he would have been liberated. And I think this would be a good time to discuss the importance of preserving the music of these composers who perished in the Holocaust. Why is that such a priority for you and for other musicians, such as former Ravinia Music Director James Conlin, who I understand has enthusiastically endorsed this project? One of the very interesting things about this music is that it's a window into what could have been. And at the time those pieces were written, there was a very specific way of writing music. At that time, you think Bartok, you think Berg, you think Schoenberg even. But this is all music that is inspired by those composers, but yet every single one of those composers has their own voice. If you talk about Kuti or Kattenberg, those voices are so very prominent. They don't sound like anybody else. They use tools that everybody used, but the sound and the emotion carried in those pieces is very much their own. And so it gives you an idea of had they lived, what kind of composers they would have been. So for me, it's a very important insight into what could have been. I think another reason why it's terribly important for this music to be played and listened to is because it comes from one of the darkest times in human history and that the fact that people could create art of that caliber during that time speaks for humanity at large, that we're capable of such beauty in such terrible times. Also for us, there were a few pieces that we had not looked up anything about the composers before we read them. So we really viewed them as, oh, here's a piece, no history. We were just basing our decision on whether we liked it strictly on the music. And for me, and I think I speak for all of us, that is what's so incredible about this music. Obviously, it was written at their worst times, but we didn't know that in a couple of cases when we were reading it through, and we thought they were just incredible works, great string trios that we hadn't heard, we hadn't heard anyone perform them. And then, of course, you look up to find out about the composers and you hear their stories, and that, of course, even gives you a whole nother view of the piece itself. But initially, a lot of these pieces, we, we just really loved the music and thought it was incredible writing and that these were just great composers. How would you say this is relevant to society today? What is wonderful about these pieces, we've now played them quite a few times, and I'll just use one of our recent performances as an example. We had played at the Marion in Evanston, and they titled the program Silenced Voices and gave a little blurb about what it was about. And the attendance was sparser than usual, we were told. And it was interesting afterwards. We had a question and answer, and they said, so many of our friends didn't come today, and we're so upset because the music was so wonderful, and it was not what I expected to hear mm. when I saw what the title of the program was. And I think that's why it's so relevant today that at the same time you can tell a story about history People are getting moved by the music. Of course, in parts of the CD, you definitely hear the strife, but there's so much happiness in some of these works and just wonderful emotions that come out and rhythms and like the Freed is so full of Bartokian Hungarian rhythms and it's just people love to listen to the works. We've had students say how many of these pieces are some of the best pieces they've heard. So you can get people engaged in the music 
and then be able to tell a story about it. Well, and speaking of the story, I have to note that, as people know from current events, that anti-Semitism and authoritarianism are hardly behind us these days. Mm. Yeah, if you look back in Europe, you know, Poland and Hungary are already scary places. And the fact that for European elections, there are still groups like the Front National in France, the extreme rights were open about anti-Semitism and racism, xenophobia in general, that are still pointing their nose. I think one of the great things about this project is that as human beings, we should never forget, right? And people tend to forget. And it's not been that long since people were shipped to gas chambers. And yet people not only forget about it, but they even claim that maybe it didn't happen. And just the fact that this is still part of everyday conversation makes this project very relevant because it's one thing to talk about the people. It's another thing to talk about what they created. And as an artist, you want to speak for those who count, and this is our way to do it. As is the case with the work by Hans Kranza, the piece we're about to hear by Gideon Klein, his string trio, was also composed in Treysenstadt, and this might be a good time to mention that you'll be performing this music in Treysenstadt in August, just a month after the album is released on CD Records. It's actually part of a larger tour that we are doing in summer. We're playing in Terezin, we're playing in a town called Vitel, that actually is a spa town that creates water now, which was a big town during the collaboration between France and the Nazi regime, where Jewish people were stationed before being sent to Drancy and other concentration camp. So mm-hmm. it's a good start for us in that tour, and right after that we're going to Terezin. It came about really quite incredibly. We were playing a concert in Paris, And at the end of the concert, a woman walks up to us and she said, I want to introduce myself. I just was at the festival in Terezin and I think your program and your music would be perfect for our festival and I'm going to put you in touch with the director. And literally it was from this Czech woman coming in and talking to us and by happenstance being at this concert through a friend of hers. So that's how we got to this wonderful festival and it will be in mid-August. And we will be there performing most of the works on the CD. Let's get to Gideon Klein's work now. In his excellent program notes to the album, Bob Elias points out that the central movement is really the dominant part of Klein's trio. So let's talk about the outer movements first and then discuss the heart of the work. Yeah, this middle movement is kind of extraordinary in the fact that it's longer than the other two movements combined. So the first movement is the shortest, it's an allegro, and then the third movement is an aggressive, almost march-like character that starts off with the cello and the viola. But it's this middle movement that is really so extraordinary, and, and quite a lot has been written about it. It's sort of hidden meanings and messages. There are moments that are truly heartbreaking, aren't there? Yeah, it's very emotional, and many composers come to mind. Someone suggested Album Berg, which is kind of interesting. Mm. It's really a formidable piece. It's probably one of the most famous string trios around. This piece is pretty well known as far as this combination is concerned, and for good reason, because it's an extremely well-written piece. It's actually, for me, the only, with the Passacaglia by Krasa, it's the only one that you can really feel where it was written and how it was written. They're both very dark, and like you said, very emotional. 
And the fact that he uses Moravian themes, which are folk songs, even drives the point home a little bit more. Right. And then this actual Moravian folk song that the theme is based on is a song called the Nesdub Tower, which is basically a song about a wild goose flying up into a high tower. And so a lot of people have put a lot of meaning into this about freedom and, you know, how he was feeling at the time. Well, let's hear some of that then. This is an excerpt from the central movement, the Lento, from Trio for Violin, Viola, and Cello by Gideon Klein, performed by Black Oak Ensemble. That rather extraordinary music was uh, an excerpt of the Lento, the central movement of Gideon Klein's trio for violin, viola, and cello, performed by Black Oak Ensemble, who are 
Desiree Rustrat violin, Aurelian Pedersoli viola, and David Cunliffe cello. It's from their new album on Sadie Records, their debut album, Silenced Voices. And these are all composers affected greatly by the war. The next composer on the album, Paul Herman, has a similar history to Chandra Kuti as a product of Budapest's Franz Liszt Academy. He was also a cello virtuoso. Can you talk about him both as a performer and a composer? He was known as the Hungarian Pablo Casals and by all reports was a really formidable cellist. He premiered the English composer Frank Bridges' cello sonata and also Schoenberg's solo cello sonata. And he also had a group with a violinist called Zekeli, and he went all over Europe with him playing duos. And it's kind of an amusing story. They used to visit London quite a lot, and they played at this wealthy family, the de Graff Bachin family, and they played at a soiree. I think this is 1928, something like that. And the story goes is that Paul Herman was dancing with his cello after this soiree and dancing around and people were applauding and he fell over and he, he completely smashed it to mm. smithereens. Everything was okay because uh, Yap de Graf happened to be a very wealthy man and immediately bought him a brand new cello which happened to be an incredibly fine Galliano Italian cello and for good measure threw in a Stradivarius for mm. Zeckeli the violinist. So yeah he was pretty well known probably more as a performer, more as a cellist than a composer. But he was also a fantastic composer. As we'll hear in, in this piece. It, so he packs a lot into this single movement trio, which note writer Bob Elias describes as a mix of rondo and variation form. Can you discuss the piece a little bit? So it looks like he intended to add more movements to this, but we only have the one movement. It's in 9-8 time, so it's got this kind of lilting quality at the beginning and starts in a very, very dark place. And it has these variations that get repeated in various forms. And then it's a great ending. It sort of accelerates and accelerates, and then it's a very triumphant ending in a major key. It's a very interesting piece. I think by far it's the hardest piece on the album for me. Oh, definitely. For mm. us, There's I think all three of us can say that. There's well. large portions of just <laughs> unison between three string players, yeah. which is never <laughs> No, this was the one that I think whenever we came to that point in the rehearsal, we were like, let's just take a break. And then we knew we were in for quite a session. And yet we had zero editing on it. It's yeah. incredible. <laughs> 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 well, there was another connection to this wealthy patron of the arts, Yap de Graaf, in that Jaap de Graaf suggested that his niece, Dutch niece, go and see Herman perform in Amsterdam. And when they met, they fell in love with each other, despite their different cultures and nationalities and religions. And then they moved to Berlin in 1930 and had a daughter, Corrie Herman, who I think is still, I think she's a Dutch politician. But then uh, there was a lot of tragedy. Ada, his wife, died after a drowning accident in the North Sea. And then he left Berlin because the political climate became more and more threatening, decided to hide his daughter in the Netherlands, and he moved on to Brussels and then had to move on to Paris. So he was constantly moving. He eventually moved to the south of France in a farmhouse near Toulouse. And it was there, I think he was so fed up of having to hide in this sort of solitary 
confinement that he was forced into that occasionally he would go into the city, Toulouse, and socialize. And it was on one of these visits that he was picked up in a roundup by the Nazis. And then he was sent to Drancy and then to a forced labor camp in Lithuania. Mm. Let's hear some of his music. This is from his string trio in one movement by Paul Herrmann performed by Black Oak Ensemble from their album, Silenced Voices. We just heard an excerpt from a string trio by Paul Herrmann, a Hungarian composer who sadly perished in the war, as did almost all the composers on this album, Silence Voices, the debut album of Chicago's Black Oak Ensemble. We now come to the one work that's actually by a survivor of the war and also the one world premiere on this disc of rarities. The name is Geza Fried, Fried spelled F-R-I-D, but even his voice was silenced for a time. Can you talk about how the war affected his life and art and how he actually managed to survive it? I'd love to start out by giving a little background of how he even got to this piece. It came from an email I had written to tell Corrine at the Leo Smith Foundation that we had finished rehearsing all of the pieces that were going to be on the CD and we had a date set for recording. And she came back was saying, I'm so very much looking forward to your CD, but I have another suggestion, a string trio by Geza Fried. 
And then she had written that Freed and actually Paul Herman, who we were just talking about, studied together in Budapest, and they were both with Kodai, and that Freed actually dedicated this string trio to Kodai. And that's what was really just so amazing, is that here at the very end, we had thought our CD was finished. We make this discovery of this wonderful work by Gesa Freed. Freed was born in a, a small town that I cannot pronounce because it was in the border between Hungary and Romania. I'm not even going to attempt to say it. Like Desiree said, he went to the List Academy and studied with Bartok and Kodai. What happened is, and one of the reasons why he's the only survivor, is that he left Hungary when the proto-fascist and anti-Semitic policies started to be put in motion. The late 20s, he settled in the Netherlands and he never got detected as what was called a stateless Jew because in that time, anywhere between the 20s and the late 40s, if you were Jewish, you were Jewish first. That was almost a nationality, it was a race. And so he was not detected as a stateless Jew. He became a citizen and then a composer. He married a Dutch woman and that is kind of what saved him. One of the things that stopped Fried's career at the very start was him having to run away from the policies that I talked about earlier. It took him quite a while to be installed as a composer. In fact, not until the war could he come out as a composer and have his music publicly played. So this is a way that he was silenced, not only by the regime, but by the time. When he wrote that first piece, when he was still Hungarian and he still lived in Budapest, there is no sign that it was performed and shortly after he was on the run. So the regime, the time, and his nationality as a Jew is a big part of why he is not well-known, because his music is fantastic, and had he not have to deal with those hardships, he probably would have been much more important in the music of the 20th century. So it wasn't until he got to the Netherlands that his music actually not only that he got to the Netherlands, but until after the war, when he was not in risk of being deported or being exposed as a Jew. Also, he fought in the resistance in Netherlands, and that is completely counterintuitive to having a musical career. I also think he was focusing a lot on his concert career as a pianist, because he did quite a lot. There's a fabulous picture of him when he's six years old, and apparently he was some incredible piano prodigy and people said he could play anything by memory but he played with some really big people with Kodai and Bartok and even apparently he even played with Schering the violinist so he was pretty prolific not only as a composer but also as a pianist. This is one of his first pieces most of his music has a very strong Hungarian quality to it and at least at the beginning of his career he never went into 12 tones or any kind of Viennese school way of writing. This is, like I said, it's a very, very early piece. It is so Hungarian. Uh, everything about it is written. It's straight out of Hungarian speech. And the last movement is a rondo a la Hungaria, basically gypsy. As Aurelian was just saying, this piece is very, very Hungarian in its mood. And that's particularly evident with these drones that he puts in the composition, which are a drone being a sort of long sustained note or two notes held in particular by the cello. And I think he was trying to depict Hungarian traditional instruments like a Hungarian hurdy-gurdy or even Hungarian bagpipes. 
And this is not only the only world premiere on the album, it's also the largest work, both in terms of length and just, I think, sheer sound produced. There are just some really, really big moments in this piece. But as you mentioned, it ends with this gypsy rondo, and I think we'll end the podcast musically with that because I think it's a way of ending on a hopeful note just as we do by ending with the one composer who is a survivor. So here is an excerpt from Allegro Giocoso Alungarese, Gypsy Allegro, by Geza Fried, the third movement of his Opus One string trio, Trio Accord, played by Black Oak Ensemble. It's the final work on their album, Silenced Voices. just heard an excerpt from the final movement of Gesa Fried's Trio Accord. Opus 1 is String Trio, as performed by Black Oak Ensemble, a Chicago-based string trio making its debut recording called Silenced Voices. And now that our listeners have had a chance to hear parts of each piece, what would you like them to take away from the program as a whole? Is there a larger message here? I think the importance for us of the CD is that these composers are no longer silenced and that they now have a voice and people will be able to enjoy their music at the same time remember a part of history that should never be forgotten. And you can enjoy the album by going to cdrecords.org, our website, c-e-d-i-l-l-e-records.org, or 
Amazon.com or Archive Music or Spotify or anywhere else music is sold or streamed. We really think this is an important album for everybody to hear in any way they care to hear their music. Let's move on to talking about you guys again. This is your debut album. What's next for you both as an ensemble and as individual performers? As an ensemble, we have a number of performances coming up this summer. And of course, the most meaningful for us is the one that we will be doing in Tarazine. But around that, we have quite a few concerts in Europe. And we also have a music festival. This will be our third year, fourth year. Oh, wow, time flies. It's outside of Toulouse in this fabulous little town called Samore. And we bring students, we'll have a number of students this summer with us, and as well as the Cavatina duo, who also records for Sadie Records, and that we've done, actually, David and I were on their Sephardic project. They will be with us this summer at our festival, so we're very excited about that. And individually, since David and I are in the Lincoln Trio, we have a number of concerts with the trio coming up, our Ravinia performance in June. And then we have a few festivals that we're doing with the Lincoln Trio as well. Aurelian? My next season is, with the exception of the Black Oak Ensemble tours in winter and May, I'm looking forward to a season uh, performing with the Lyric Opera of Chicago and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And finally, the question we like to ask at the end of all of these podcasts is, uh, for you, what makes the Chicago classical music scene so special? We're just unbelievably lucky to live in Chicago. Aurelian just mentioned he's just been playing with the Chicago Symphony. We have the best symphony orchestra in the world right here on our doorstep. We have a great radio station, WFMT, which we're talking from now. We have great festivals, the Ravinia Festival. We also have this... Jim's going to go red now, but we have this fantastic record label called Sadie Records, which is just incredible for us as musicians. We are just so lucky to be involved with, with this organization. And making a CD with Sadie Records is a, a privilege, and it's incredibly useful to our careers. And as many people have said before, it's like our calling card that we can present to so many people across the world. And we'll be taking them with us on these two trips to Europe that we have ahead. So we're very, very lucky. Well, it's a real privilege for me to be able to record groups like Black Oak Ensemble and the Lincoln Trio. And I've been fortunate to be the producer of this album and all but one of the Lincoln Trio Mm -hmm. albums. Well, thank you so much for recording this podcast. And yes, we are, in fact, recording from the studios of Chicago's great classical music station, WFMT. So thank you all for listening.